Guys, this morning as we get started, um, I wanted to share with you, there's a, what we talked about two weeks ago just in passing about, um, you know, the ways we had seen things going not so great in the world. Um, we're going to spend a quick moment in prayer for the annual convention meeting. Um, many of you are aware, I mean, the, the church is part of the SBC. Our annual convention meeting is actually in California this weekend, and there, a lot of the decisions and the things that are going to be voted on today, tomorrow, Tuesday, the people that will be put into leadership is going to kind of affect the trajectory of how the convention responds to the different stories and things that you guys have heard. So if, if you want to know more about that, I would gladly talk with you more after service. But we're going to pray for our leadership this morning just before we dive into the word. Um, Father, we are grateful to be gathered here this morning. Um, just grateful for the church family that you have blessed us with. Father, that it's as we gather here, we're also grateful. Uh, there are many gathering in your name at this time this morning, Father. Um, and not just Southern Baptists, but churches across our nation, Father, of full of people who love you, uh, who want to see your name made great, who want to see your kingdom come, your will be done. Father, we, we just want to pause for a moment this morning and lift up those who, who were able to make the journey out to California, um, who are, are prayerfully considering your leadership, uh, your calling before your people, God. Uh, we are aware <laughs> that we, we have your image to uphold. Uh, we have not done a great job of that. Uh, there's, there's, there's just too many examples of that we've seen over the past few weeks. Um, so, Father, we trust your, your grace and your mercy will rest upon us. Um, Father, we ask for your spirit's wisdom and discernment for our convention leadership as they meet. Also for us this morning, Lord, as we, we continue to journey through a, a book uh, that's got a lot of chapters in it that we probably tend to skip over when we're doing our devotional reading, Lord, because it's, it's just tougher for us to understand. So, um, Father, may you, may you just be with us this morning. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Guys, we are in Exodus 26 this morning. And we are building off of the directions and the, uh, what I call the blueprints we saw last week with a little bit more blueprints this week. Um, and I, I, I gave some people gold stars last week to say, if, if you've not skipped the blueprint section in your daily or your you know, yearly reading through the word, then gold star for you. Because this, the engineer in me loves a good set of blueprints, loves to sit down and read the details, and loves to piece it all together. And when I'm reading through this, you know, at first glance, you're like, okay, cool. They built a temple. Uh, they built it, uh, you know, specific dimensions and colors and things. That's kind of cool. What do we do with this? Um, and guys, I want to share with you this morning, there's, there's a lot more going on here than just dimensions and materials and to-do lists and build things this way. Um, and what I call the holy grommets that have the loops of the curtains. I mean, there's, there's a lot more going on in here. Um, and we're going to build off of where we started last week. Uh, if you guys can remember, right now where we're at in Exodus, Moses is on the mountain with God. 
And God has called Moses into his presence. And he said, Moses, I'm going to teach you what you need to then turn around and teach the people of Israel so they know what it looks like to live in my presence. So all this, all this scripture that we're reading last week, this week, the next coming weeks, it's all going to be pointing to this answer of what does it look like for you and I to live in God's presence. And we're going to see in all these dimensions and all these details and these buildings and these, these, these symbols and all this stuff that what God is really after, like we've said, is you and I to be with him. What does this look like? Okay. Last week we started out by saying it looks in first like we sacrifice our life to God. And then what he promises in return is his righteousness, his presence, and his life. So there's kind of this exchange going on, if you will. God, I give you my life. And God promises these things in return. And we saw specifically these promises teach us to see uh, faith in terms of covenantal language, right? A relationship. As opposed to uh, what, what we said last week, temporal, right? It has a start time, an end time, it has goals to achieve. God says that that might get wrapped up in the relationship, but that's, that's not ultimately what I am after. Now, last week we were kind of diving in and looking at the symbols. Guys, this week we're going to pull out and we're just going to look at the big picture the tabernacle itself, okay? It's this big, massive, beautiful tent in the desert. Why does it matter? What does this mean for us? And guys, I, as I was wrestling through this this week, I started to realize God was using the tabernacle to remind Israel of who they were, okay? So as we are going through this this morning, you're going to read it and think that's I'm not sure how you're getting there, Jordan. That's, that's why we get to unpack this together. But guys, today... As we're moving through the word, I, I really want to encourage you just be reminded of who God has made you to be, okay? That there are, there are a lot of competing narratives in our world, uh, both within the church and outside of the church, that try to just tell you this is who you are. Because if we could tell you who you are, then we can get you to do X, Y, and Z. Guys, be, be reminded this morning, we're, we're going to know who we are after we read through Exodus 26. So beginning in verse 1, here we go. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully woven into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits, and all the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set, and likewise you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops shall you make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge or on the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold, the holy grommets I was talking about, Fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains to one another with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each four. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves, and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front end. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is the outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is the outermost on the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. 
And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. Now you shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of each frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, twenty frames for the south side, and forty bases of silver you shall make under the twenty frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, two bases under the next frame for its two tenons, and the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, twenty frames." And there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for corners at the tabernacle in the rear, and they shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus it shall be with both of them that they shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame, and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames on the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frames, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold, and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars. And you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain." And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully woven into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on the four bases of the silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the most holy place from the most, the holy place, excuse me, from the most holy you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of the gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. God, we come to you this morning always grateful to hear from your word. We come to you this morning probably a little, a little more confused than normal. So, Father, just by your Holy Spirit, may we understand what's going on. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Now, most of you, I, I started off by saying... This is going to remind us of who we are. And if you look around at one another this morning, you're probably noticing uh, very few of us are probably made with acacia wood and overlaid in gold. We're probably not wearing clothes made out of goat or ram skin. So you're saying, okay, Jordan, how do you, how do you put these pieces together, okay? Guys, uh, where we're going this morning, first, there, there's three, three kind of movements that we should see when we look at this text, okay? That God designed the tabernacle first off, right? He's very careful in the way that he designed it and the way that he put it together. Intentional is probably the right word there. There's an intentional design. 
he also gave the tabernacle a specific purpose, a, a place for him to dwell among us. So specific design, specific uh, purpose. And then what he's after ultimately is righteousness, a specific righteousness. So the first thing that should jump out to us is all these details. I mean, you guys heard when I'm reading this that I'm stumbling over the words because it sounds like you're reading everything twice, right? God is being very, very oddly specific, and, and that should cause us to ask the question, why? Why, God, do you care if it's made exactly with this number of frames and this number of curtains and, and this skin here and this thing's there? I mean, we see we've got over 30 verses with the exact dimensions, numbers, materials, colors, location. Like, this is a blueprint that God is giving his people. And it should, it should trigger two things in us. It should tell us, one, this is a physical place, right? God is not just giving Israel theoretically, hey, if you're going to build me a tabernacle, uh, I like the color blue, put it here. I like the color gold, put it here. Uh, I like this type of wood. I like this type of curtain. God is not giving his people something in theory. He's telling them, build me something physical. But the level of detail that God gives should tell us he's after more than just, I need you to build this a certain way. The tabernacle is more than just a physical place. It's also a spiritual place. We're told in verses 31 through 33 that the tabernacle would be divided between the holy place and the most holy place. In verse 34, you see that the most holy place has inside of it the Ark of the Testimony, right? The covenant, we talked about this last week, with its mercy seat. So inside the most holy place, this is where God says, I'm going to come. I'm going to make you right with me. I'm going to teach you what it is to stay right with me for right now and, and throughout your history. You also see that just outside of the veil, there's this table and this lampstand. We, we talked about those in details last week, so I, I'm not going to dive too far back into it. But it's, it was God's way of saying, I'm going to be with you, and you're going to eat with me. You're going to drink with me. You're going you're gonna to share a meal with me, which just means I'm going to make you right with me. That for God to have a meal with his people, it was his way of saying, we're good. You're forgiven. I have reconciled you. So what's going on inside of this tabernacle? There's, it's a physical design. It's also a spiritual design. And God also, there's this phrase that we heard a couple times last week, and I, I intentionally didn't point it out because we're going to get to it again this week in verse 30. You see, God tells Moses, you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. Now, most of us would read that and think, okay, like, big deal. So God has drawn something in the side of a mountain and Moses is going to go build it, okay? Think back a couple weeks ago. Do you remember when we were talking about the holy picnic? That Moses, where, right now where he's at with God, he is on the mountain, but he's, he's not alone. That God, in, a, in the form of a cloud, his presence has totally engulfed the mountain. So all Moses sees when he's on the mountain looking at the mountain, all he sees is God. So when God is saying, build this according to the directions you are seeing on the mountain, God is telling Moses, build this in accordance with, what do you see, Moses? You see me. Moses is not just building something a physical place, a spiritual place. He's building something after the image of God. And this, this idea is reinforced in the word plan. 
We, in our English Bibles, it says according to the plan or according to the design that you see on the mountain. That word is a really common word in the Old Testament, but this is one of only like three times that it actually is translated as plan. That word really means judgment. It's the same word when you read throughout the Old Testament, you see God judges the people, God gives a judgment. It's the same word. So it's not like God is just giving a, a design that he likes to Moses. He's saying, I have decided that the way that I'm telling you to do this is right, is correct, is perfect, is in my image. And that to go do anything else, Moses, this, it's to go against who I am. He's giving a, a judgment, a decision concerning the upholding of righteousness in church. Who, who alone is righteous? It's, it's our God. So what Moses is getting in this chapter, okay, right, and buried beneath all these dimensions, all these materials, all these things, you are seeing God wants Moses to build a physical place that's also a spiritual place that's made after his image, okay? Some of you can probably see where I'm going with this, but before we get to that point, what was the tabernacle designed to do? Why did it have to be physical, spiritual? Why did it have to be designed after God's image? We're told in this chapter and in the previous chapter, guys, the second piece, God's designing this tabernacle as a place for him to dwell among us. That was in uh, chapter 25, verse 8. God specifically said, And let them make me a sanctuary tabernacle that I may dwell in their midst. The Hebrew noun that's translated tabernacle all throughout the Old Testament literally means dwelling place, right? It literally means a place where God was going to come and dwell. And I, I realized this week, we probably have a different idea of dwelling than what the Israelites would have understood. Because if you're like me, when, when I talk about a dwelling place, my mind immediately goes to my house, right? That's the place where, where I dwell. And if, you know, my house is important, my house is valuable to me, I want to take care of it, I want to do a good job with it. But there's a lot of parts of my life that don't take place at my house. Right? Some of you are able to work from home, and that's, that's awesome, uh, but many of you probably didn't used to be able to work from home. So for most of us, work, work was outside of the home. You can imagine how difficult it would be for me to teach people how to drive a bus from inside our living room. Like, well, I have to be out of the house in order to do that. Okay? Some of the other things that take place outside of our house, uh, vacations. Right? Every once in a while, we may do a, a staycation, as people will call it, and, and those, are, those are always kind of fun to get to play tourist in your own area. But for most people, when you think about like vacation, taking time to relax, uh, it's usually going somewhere out, outside of your home. Right? There's, I just say all that to say there's a lot of things that when we think about our house, we do things outside of our house. For some of you guys, you're so busy, you spend so much time outside your house, it's basically just like home base, right? That's where I go to and I sleep at night, and that's about all that I do at my home, right? And this, again, I'm not knocking anybody's house, but if that's our idea of the tabernacle, that this was a place where certain things would take place at the tabernacle, and then the rest of the life kind of happened outside of it, that's not how Israel would have understood this. When, when you were an Israelite and God was telling you to dwell, they understood this as a matter of identity. 
Right? There's certain things about me that no matter where I am are always going to be true about me. That, things that I, you could say I, I dwell in. Right? I am always going to be Abigail's husband. Right? There's not a time where I step outside of my house or you know, like we're just not together and all of a sudden I'm, I'm no longer her husband. Right? I'm always married to Abigail. I'm always the father of Jefferson and Charlotte. Like there, I don't walk into BT, become a trainer, all of a sudden I don't, I don't have kids anymore. You know, when I come here, like, I still am married. I still have kids. I'm still Jeff and Lori's son. I'm still Brad's brother. Like, there's, there's a different way of looking at me where I say these things about me never change because I dwell in them. That's core of who I am. This is the understanding wrapped up in the noun tabernacle that God gives to his people. When he says, build for me a dwelling place, he's saying, you're not building for me a physical location that you can like come to and then leave and that some of your life takes place here and some of your life takes place outside of it. He says, no, no. I mean, the language is there, guys. You are my, my children, right? My chosen nation, my royal priesthood. God's not looking to check in and check out with his people. He says, build for me a place that I will always be with you. And that why that's so important for us to understand, guys, is it, it affects the way we think about who God is and what he wants of us, okay? If, if we're thinking more along the, the house lines, then God kind of appears like this, this judgmental, demanding being that has some standard we're supposed to live up to, and then we're, we're punished or we're rejected or we're cast aside if we're just not good enough to it, okay? perfect example of this would be when I build Legos with Charlie, I want to follow the directions so that my final product looks like the picture on the front of the box. Charlie's not quite there yet. Uh, most two and a half year olds are not at the point where they can follow directions to duplicate a picture. She just puts pieces together. And it, there's a part of me that thinks, oh, it's cool that you're building the Legos with me. And then there's another part of me that says, but that's not what it's supposed to look like. So inevitably, at the end of the day, I end up undoing whatever she does so that it actually fits the directions. And I've learned that if you do that enough, you irritate her enough to where she just leaves and she doesn't want to help you with your Legos anymore, okay? Some of us, that's, that's the view we have of God, that he has this end goal in mind that he's trying to get us to do things in order to match that. And that if we don't hold up our end of the bargain, if we don't do the things according to his directions, he's just going to kind of keep on doing what we're doing until we just realize, man, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't really care that much about me. right? That he, he'll just either cast me aside saying, okay, you tried. Um, I'm going to find somebody else who can actually do this. It matters. It matters for us to understand that's not how the Israelites would have understood what God was calling them to do. Because you and I, that's not what God is calling of us. He is saying, build for me a dwelling place, a place where I am going to come and I'm going to be with you. And I'm not going to leave you every now and then. You're not going to leave me every now and then. We're not like going to have our separate spheres over here. We're going to take care of some things and then come together. He says, build for me a dwelling place. And you still get this idea. You see, guys, all these materials. We talked about this last week, right? Israel was a nation that had been enslaved for 400 years. They didn't have 
materials like this just laying around. God gave this to them. They took it from Egypt on their way out. God said, take this stuff from Egypt. So Israel is now like, wow, for the first time in 400 years, we have things that the rest of the world considers to be valuable. And God says, hand it over. He says, I gave it to you to show you how much I can provide, to show you how much I will make you valuable to the world. But all that's, all that's mine. All that belongs to me. God says all the, the best. He, he says, look, I'm, I don't just want you to give me out of whatever you don't want, right? Or, or give to me whatever is not the best of what you have. Same idea. It would make sense if God was just only after a physical place that you could give him whatever he wants. But he says, look, if I'm, if I'm asking you for a dwelling place that I'm going to be, I mean, if you're getting all of me, I, I expect the best from you. Israel sacrificing their best to God's shoulder. Yeah, you know what? Okay, God, we don't fully get what this looks like, but we're going to give this. We're going to give this to you, and we're going to trust your presence is better than anything else. We, we are seeing God use the tabernacle as a way to teach them this. And the last thing God is teaching his people in the tabernacle is about his righteousness, right? So he designed the tabernacle as this physical place, this spiritual place, that's designed after his image for him to come and dwell in for what? And the last piece, for God to make his righteousness known, right? For us and, and to the world. And we get this, guys, in, in the, towards the end of the chapter, verse 31, you shall make a veil, a veil of purple and scarlet and blue yarns and fine twined linen. The Hebrew noun for there, or for veil, shares a similar root to another word that means harshness, severity, or cruelty. So the, the noun veil, porteketh, means a veil or a dividing wall. It's linked to another word, perek, meaning harsh, severe, cruel. That, that perek word is only used four times in the scriptures, two of them in Exodus at chapter 1, when Israel is enslaved by Egypt, says that they were dealt with harshly, severely, cruelly. What God is telling them to do in putting this veil here is, is he's basically saying, Israel, when, when Egypt set themselves up as their Lord, as your Lord, right? They've enslaved you. They've put themselves in position over you. There was a division. There was a veil. There was a dividing wall placed between you and the one who should have rightfully been your Lord, me. And he said, and because of that wall, there, there was harshness, there was severity, there was cruelty to you that came into the picture. This wall is keeping you from me, and because of that, it is keeping you in a harsh, severe, cruel place. And it's amazing that as God puts this in the tabernacle to say, look, I recognize that even though you are my people, this division exists. What's right behind the veil, church, is the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, God's, God's promised place where he comes to dwell with his people, to teach them what it is to be with him, and to make them right. So God is, what you're seeing is this picture of God working closer and closer to draw his people to him, right? We started off in Exodus where they're in slavery. They've been there for 400 years. They have no clue who God is, 
right? God has brought them out of Egypt. They were following this pillar of fire, this cloud. And so they're saying, okay, now we can kind of see God, but we have no clue like who he is, what he's after, what he's doing. God's giving them the law. Moses is telling them the law. They're going, okay, we're getting a better understanding of who God is and what he's after us. And then you saw in chapter 24, Moses makes the sacrifice. They go eat a meal with God. So God has now kind of brought them back to be right with him. Here in the tabernacle, God says, I'm building for you a physical place, a spiritual place after my image where I will dwell and I will use this place to, to bring the whole nation of Israel to be right with me. In the coming chapters we're going to get into, there's the altars and some things regarding sacrifices and the priests. So God says, look, we're, we're getting closer. We're getting closer to when you and I will fully be right with one another. You will no longer be broken off. And church, if you remember, there's another place in scripture that this veil makes an appearance that some of you may be more familiar with. In Matthew 27, 51, we're told when Jesus gives up his last breath on the cross. That the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Many of you, if, if you've heard that sermon preached, you've probably heard some pastor explain that that was God's way tearing from top to bottom, right? Like, I cannot tear this curtain from top to bottom. Maybe from the bottom I can work my way up. But that was God's way of saying, I have removed the barrier between myself and you. Church, that is this veil, this dividing wall that means that there's, there's harshness, there's something wrong because you and I are not right with God. God has taken this away in Christ. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. He says, Christ is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. What is Christ broken down? The dividing wall of hostility. Right here. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he, God, might create in himself Christ one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In the tabernacle, God shows his people, you are not yet fully right with me, but that is what I am working towards. That in all things, guys, I am working to bring you back into a right place with me. And so as, we, as you think about, okay, Jordan, how, how do you make the connection between the tabernacle and us? I want you to think about what else in Scripture do you hear of God making something physical? It's also got some spiritual purpose in it that's made after his image that's made as a dwelling place for himself on earth, that's made so that his creation could be right with him and the rest of his world could be right with him. Church, what, what should that sound like? At, at the beginning of the sermon when I said, this is going to show us who we are, let me read for you Hebrews chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. Because just in case you think I'm just blowing smoke at you guys, just like we did last week, the scripture often points back to places like this in Exodus and says, this is what we were talking about the whole time. Ex or Hebrews chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, this tent that we just read about, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. 
But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For God finds fault with with this first covenant that we're reading. He finds fault with it when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, this covenant that we're reading, not like this one because they, on the, the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. God says, look, I had this set up from the beginning. You were going to be right with me. And Israel, you left it. Somewhere along the line, Israel, you started to hear other narratives about who you were and what you were made to do. You left my covenant. God says, so I'm going to bring a new one to you. And the ver- Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, here's what's coming. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. God says, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to literally come and make you follower of Christ. The tabernacle. Then he says in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. We don't need the physical tabernacle anymore. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Church, this is who you and I were made to be. You and I were made to be the physical, spiritual image bearer of God on earth so that his creation, so that all of us would be right with him. And when Christ came and he tore down the tabernacle, God said, now, now I can come dwell in you. Now I can pour out my Holy Spirit onto you. Now you physically, you church, you follower of Christ, you have become my tabernacle. So what this means for us today, guys, just first off, look, just be reminded, be encouraged, this, this is who you are. You were made in God's image as his dwelling place where he could actually come be here with us through you, through me. And I I feel a a need to impress this this morning just because, guys, there, I mean, as I'm reading, thinking about what's going to take place at the convention this weekend, but just as you listen to, to our world, there are, There are a lot of voices telling you who you are and who you are not, what you should, what you shouldn't do when you are a follower of Christ. And and just in general, okay, you could pull it back even bigger for a second. There are a lot of voices telling you who you are. And I want to encourage you that that a, a lot of our struggle, a lot of our anxiety, a lot of our worry comes when we start to lose sight of who we are, okay? There's a lot of competing narratives telling us about 
man, you should hold this as fundamental to who you are. You should hold this as, as fundamental uh, a right that you should have. There's a lot of narratives saying, like, no, the, this strand of doctrine is better than any other strand of doctrine. Then there's, there's narratives saying, if you're really a follower of Christ, you're going to go do this. Your life is going to look this way. You're going to go achieve these things. And guys, each one of these narratives, slowly over time, it it just t- eats. It eats at who you are. Because it, it, it trains you to rethink about what is, what is success? What is the purpose of my life? W- what am I supposed to do? Our calling. It affects the way we see and we treat one another. When, when we start to get caught up in any other narrative, guys, we, we start to see others, people who are listening to a different story, as enemies. We start to see things in, in competition. We feel this tension, like, like my story and the, the people that I'm telling me of who I am, that, that has to win, right? And so everything else has to, to go away. And is that the narrative that we hear this morning, church? Is that the narrative that God has set before his people when he tells them this is who you are? He does, he's, I don't, I don't see it. Okay, that, that's, that's the best I have for you. I don't see it in the way that God tells us who he has made us to be. So what we do with this, I think very clearly God still desires a tabernacle on earth. And he desires it to be in you and me. So the call for us, church, is very simple. Build the tabernacle. Paul puts it in Romans 12, 1. We are called to build our lives as a holy, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's a verse that many of you may be familiar with. Paul is referencing back to this. He says, look, you are the tabernacle now. There's not going to be some tabernacle built by human hands that's going to somehow point everybody. No, you are the tabernacle now. And, and God is so, so gracious and good to us. He, he gives us, church, he gives us a list of exactly what it looks like when you and I build his tabernacle on earth. He says, okay, here's, if you want to know, is my spirit within you? Are you building the tabernacle? He says this, are you loving? Not necessarily in how you feel towards other people, not are you in love with, with everybody. He says, but, but do you lay down your life? for one another? Are you loving? Are you joyful? Not blind optimism, but just a resolve to be glad in what God has put before us. Man, when we, when we talk about the world, do, do people hear joy in our tone? Are you joyful? Are you peaceful? Do you forgive others? Would, would people say that you work harder to listen to them or to make sure they understand where you're coming from. That one is, uh, you can ask Abigail, that one's deeply personal for me. I am much more quick to speak than I am quick to listen. Are we peaceful? Are we patient? God says, are you slow to anger? Do you work harder to, to forgive others, to be reconciled to others, or to receive retribution from them? God says, are you kind? Do people have to earn your good nature? Do you freely give this? To them. He says, are you good? Are you upright? What's your reputation like? Not just amongst people who know you, but, but just like if somebody passed you on the street, what would they see? What would they see in you? God says, are you faithful? Are you trustworthy? Do others believe you when you give them your word? Are you reliable? 
He says, are you gentle? It's not a value our world seems to place very highly today. Are you gentle? Do you think before you speak? If people watched you, who would be getting the glory in your life? God says, are you self-controlled? Are you disciplined to be able to say no? Do you, do you run yourself or do you run others into the ground by always saying yes? Church, this, this list here, are you loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled? That's, that's not of my list. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, Paul says this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you ever wonder whether the Holy Spirit is at work inside of you or at work inside of somebody else's life, if they are buying into this narrative of making God's tabernacle on earth, God says this is exactly what you should see in the lives of that person, right? Now, thank God we are, we are not perfect. But God says, look, if the fruit, if you don't see it in them, it's not of me. God says, if you do not see, if you look at somebody's life, you look at the testimony they bear, you look at what's going on in them, if you do not see love, if you do not see joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, God said, that's not me. It doesn't matter what else you are seeing in there. He says, this is who I am. This is what it looks like to build your life as the tabernacle. This is what I'm trying to show to my world. There's another point in scripture that talks about when Moses is watching the presence of God, it says that God sent a, a trumpet blast, but his presence wasn't there. God sent a thundering clap and his, his presence wasn't there. He said a thundering light bolt, his presence wasn't there. God sent a still small voice and there his presence was. Right? This list, the fruit of the spirit, what God is saying, this is what it looks like to bear my Holy Spirit, he says, this is not going to score you brownie points with the world. This is not going to put you ahead of the noise. Because in our world, with all the narratives, man, we are fighting to make ourselves louder so that people hear us. God says, that's not me. That's not who I have made you to be. Church, I, one of my biggest my biggest concerns as your pastor is I want you to know who you are. Okay, because I, I, can, I can teach a lot of things. I, I can't make anybody do anything. But ultimately, like we've been seeing in Exodus, that's not, that's not my goal. Okay? I, I'm, and I, and I would, I'd hope and I feel this from you guys. You, you did not ask me to come be your pastor just so I could tell you what to do on Sundays. As I get to work through the word, I want to remind you this is who we are. This is who God is. This is the life that he has set before us, that he has said, this is good. Back in Genesis, when he made us in his image, he said, this is very good. I want you to be a part of that life, church. So we're going to do something a little bit different this morning for our reflection time. Um, as I was as I was reading this to myself this week, church, I actually I I can't tell you exactly where. I think it was around the end of the fruit of the spirit list. I I had to stop and I had to pray because I, I could not finish reading my notes because I, I was just feeling very deeply convicted that God, you see me this way, you call me to be this way, and I don't I don't see it. Like I, 
I do not see myself this way. I struggle to see other people this way. And remember last week we said God he doesn't work through guilt, okay? If, if, you, if you're feeling any kind of anything in your gut this morning, that is, God is not guilting, but God does convict. And we have to trust if you and I were made in his image, then when we are presented with his image, that remnant of his image within us is just screaming out, that's it. That is who I was made to be. That is what I should, that is, that's it. And if we have the Holy Spirit within us this morning and we are confronted with this is the tabernacle, this is the fruit of the Spirit, then there's something within us that should be saying this morning, that's it. Like I knew that there was something else out there. I, I knew that what, whatever I'm being told here and here and here and here about who I am and what I should be doing, I knew that there was something else. And if you are feeling the conviction this morning, church, then I, I, I want to give you a, a space to respond as you, you see need. So the band is going to come up. We're, we're going to do something music, but we're going to take just about three minutes, four minutes maybe, maybe longer if you guys want to. And I want to encourage you to, at your seats or to come over here where we have the cross. We've got all this open space. You can kneel. You can sit in a chair. Just something. Just take a moment. And don't quiet the spirit if it is feeling that conviction this morning. And I encourage you, if you have never, the language we use, if you've never given your life to Christ, if that's the conviction you're feeling this morning, then man, come see, come see me after service. okay? Because if we have the Holy Spirit within us, when it's hearing its image, it's saying, that's what I'm made to be. If we don't have the Spirit within us, then there's a part of us that should just be yearning, saying, oh, that feels right. That, that feels like I, I, I don't know you fully yet, God, but I feel like that's, that's what I've been missing, okay? So I just want to give you guys a moment to respond just as you see fit. If you need to come and pray here, if you need to pray with somebody else, if you need to come talk with us, we'll take a minute to pray. I'll close this in prayer, and then we'll continue. Father, we, are, we come to you this morning humbled that you would spend so much time, even in a list of blueprints, showing up and telling us not what to do, but who we are. Because God, you put your image within us. You are a holy God. You are a righteous God. You care. You care about your image. And not in a, in a vain or conceited way, Father, but you put that within us because you knew that that life would be worth it. That that life was was far greater than anything else. You even went as so far as to tell us right at the very beginning, don't, don't eat of any other tree here. You, you don't even want to know what life without this is like. Father, we come to you this morning because we confess we often do want to know what life without you is like. God, we, we are bombarded just on every side being told of who we are and what we should be doing. And, and Father, so much of our stress, so much of our anxiety just, just oozes forth, God, because we're constantly being told, no, don't do this, do this. No, you're not that, you're this. And God, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning where we can get together, be reminded of this, and just in this space, Father, not be distracted by something else. 
So Father, as your spirit stirs within us this morning, may we take a second and just listen. Just know that you are here and that you've called us to be with you and that you're, you're here, God. We are, we are ready to receive you. Father, in the next few minutes, may we just give our hearts to you, just pour out whatever is in there. Father, the feelings of inadequacy or just whatever we feel like we should or shouldn't be doing, Father, may we just listen. In your name we pray. righteous and holy sovereign <clears throat> in whose hand is my life and whose are all my ways keep me from fluttering about religion fix me firm to it for I am irresolute my decisions are smoke and vapor and I do not glorify thee or behave according to thy will cut me not off from before my thoughts grow to responses and the budding of my soul into full flower for thou art forbearing and good, patient and kind. Save me from myself, from the artifices and deceits of sin, from the treachery of my perverse nature, from denying thy charge against my offenses, from a life of continual rebellion against thee, from wrong principles, from wrong views, from wrong ends. For I know that all my thoughts, my affections, my desires, and my pursuits are alienated from thee. I have acted as if I had hated thee, even though thou art love itself. I have contrived to tempt thee to the uttermost, to wear out thy patience, have lived evilly in world and in action. Had I been a prince, I would have long ago crushed such a rebel. Had I been a father, I would have long ago since rejected my child. O thou Father of my spirit, thou King of my life, cast me not into destruction, drive me not from thy presence, but wound my heart that it may be healed, break thine own hand that it may make it whole. Father God, amen.